Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is April the 12th. 2022, um, two years or a little bit more than two years after the initial COVID global pandemic, it seems as if in a peculiar kind of way, history might be repeating itself. Shanghai, according to CNN, the city of 25 million people, one of the largest cities in the world, remains locked down because of the latest COVID scare. Um, according to an Axios writer there, uh, Shanghai, a modern city, is actually starving because there's no food coming into the city. The city is locked down. Um, Shanghai factory closures, according to the Wall Street Journal, resulting in more supply chain crises around the world. Um, the U.S. State Department is ordering non-emergency workers and their families to leave Shanghai. Meanwhile, nobody's entirely sure whether the rising cases in the northeast of the United States, which obviously have nothing to do with Shanghai, are the start of a larger surge. So there's a great deal of fog, as always, surrounding uh, the latest COVID emergency the Boston Symphony Orchestra has cancelled its European dates, apparently. Um, and the vaccination, meanwhile, the vaccination news is good, if not great. Uh, most people have had the vaccines, um, but not everyone's had their boosters. It's not entirely sure what all this means. Cases are up marginally, but we don't have the dramatic surge. We're not talking, though, about the return. I want to talk today about a new book out called Pandemic Inc., Chasing the Capitalists and Thieves Who Got Rich While We Got Sick by um, an investigative journalist, J. Uh, uh, David McSwain, who's talking to us from Washington, D.C. Uh, David, you, um, do you like, oh, by the way, uh, do you like to be called David or J? <laughs> David's fine. What's the J? Uh, the J is for James, my first name. It's um, it's a bit of a story. It's my mother's fault that I that I oh. had this byline. <laughs> At least you're not blaming Donald Trump. Right. Yeah. Um, David, your book, uh, in all seriousness, Pandemic Inc., is uh, the story of your investigation of how a large amount of the money for the first pandemic was wasted. Tell me how you began the story. Well, the story begins in those first really terrifying weeks and months where, you know, cases are spreading wildly and our healthcare workers don't have the, the PPE, the mask, gloves, gowns, and so forth that they need to protect themselves as hospitals are overrun and we're all on lockdown. And as the Trump administration, you know, finally decides to try to catch up to this inconvenient pandemic, I decided to follow the money and, and was just taking a look and watching the data as billions in contracts began, you know, flying out of DC into the hands of really unknown contractors. Uh, you know, there were some, right. you, you, you tweet about it. He said, let me tell you a crazy yeah. story. This is your, your pin tweet. Um, mm -hmm. It consumed two years of my life as COVID-19 shut the world down in April, 2020. I decided to follow the money. So how did you actually follow it? 
Well, well, like I said, uh, yeah, I just started looking at who some of these contractors were who were getting big deals for for vital supplies like masks and gloves and so forth. And notice a lot of them really had no footprint and uh, honed in on one contractor specifically who got a $34.5 million deal with the Veterans Administration, which oversees the largest uh, network of hospitals in the country. Pretty key to the pandemic response at this point and called him up and asked how he managed to have the 6 million N95 masks he claimed to have. He says, uh, well, I have them, I promise. Uh, I'm getting on a private jet in the morning to oversee the delivery. And I said, well, that's really fascinating. I'd love to tag along. And he said, okay. So hours later, I'm on a private jet uh, to Chicago by way of Georgia for some reason, and slowly started to realize that he didn't have masks. The story kept changing various characters were, were being introduced and it really seemed like madness. And, and I wanted to understand how this person became such a key part of, of that agency's pandemic response. And basically that set off more than a year of reporting, just looking at where we were sending money, who we were hiring and really delving into our lack of preparedness and how it left us really vulnerable and dependent on essentially mercenaries. Uh, the, you know, one of the main characters in the book, uh, the guy with the private jet, referred to them as buccaneers and pirates, you know, this sort of underground world of mass brokers and, and investors and, uh, you know, all kinds of enterprise. And, you know, I just kept pulling on it and, you know, ended up with a story that takes us uh, well into last year. David, what does your reporting most tell us? Did it, does it tell us about the dysfunctionality of the American state? Does it tell us about the lack of preparation for a, a crisis like COVID? Or does it tell us about the dysfunctionality of the American healthcare system? Or are all those three things somehow bound up together? I, I think they are all bound up together. I, I didn't want to write a dissertation on you know, the consequences of not having universal health care, for instance, that's been written about, though I could talk about it at length. But this this really, as I was really just sort of following what I saw as advantageous greed and how that, you know, uh, how that relationship sort of evolved because of our lack of preparedness, I realized this is this is a story about our inability to listen to each other in good faith and prepare and the consequences of sort of leaning on our worst instincts. And, you know, throughout the pandemic, especially in the Trump, during the Trump administration, there was this notion that, well, that the free market's going to take care of itself. We weren't prepared. Sure. But we'll just throw money everywhere. And, and all we did was really exacerbate the chaos and get in our own way at every turn. Is that really the case though? Um, we did a show with Brendan Burrell, probably, little more than a year ago about the what he calls the inside story of operation um warp speed he came out with a book called the first shots the epic rivalries and heroic science behind the race to the coronavirus vaccine um burrell's argument it was the very absence of a centralized authority that enabled america to essentially sponsor the vaccine so Quickly, how would you respond to people like Burrell, who are perhaps a little bit more sympathetic to the chaotic nature of the American system? Well, I actually include in in the book Pandemic Inc. a, a chapter focused on the vaccine, and 
you know, if, if you read it, it, it strikes a different tone than the rest of the book. I mean, we certainly were in a position in those early weeks where throwing money at pharmaceutical companies to develop a vaccine really was the way forward. And a lot of that did work out uh, in large part because of science that had been developed, you know, through taxpayer support and funding. Um, but Operation Warp Speed is sort of the silver lining, if you will, the delivery of the vaccines. Uh, I, I tend to focus a little bit more in the book on products and conmen and scammers, while those who just happen to be in a good position, uh, pharmaceutical companies, for instance, and their executives did profit, but we got something highly valuable in return and throwing money uh, at that you know, was was pretty crucial to the pandemic response, though, though it took a while for for that to help us level things out. I take your point about uh, the pandemic, David. Obviously, you've done your reporting. There were a lot of scammers out there, but isn't that inevitable? I mean, it's all very well reporting on the scammers. Did you report on those who were successfully able to use government money to bring in supplies and resources to help fight the virus? Uh, there certainly were folks who did deliver on their contracts, though often for exorbitant prices. The, the point that I really follow here is had we paid attention, and this does not fall on one administration or one party necessarily, had we paid attention to the warning signs and beefed up the national stockpile, had President Trump invoked the Defense Production Act earlier and really made sure that we had you know, a very visible hand determining where supplies go, making sure we had enough, making sure it's going to the right people and that, and that taxpayers are getting a fair deal, we would have mitigated a lot of the chaos and perhaps saved lives. Uh, I mean, the the distinction of the vaccines is that you're dealing with well-established private corporations that have all number of reporting requirements and they're publicly traded, et cetera. The initial pandemic response was by and large dependent on LLCs uh, and just random people, often people with history of fraud allegations who just raised their hand and they got a major contract. I mean, are we talking 10, 5, 50, 80% of the people who, who, who began businesses, who took money from the state. Uh, give me an idea of the, the, the numbers involved here in terms of, uh, of, of what happened. Sure. Well, I mean, I can tell you that it, it was like shooting fish in a barrel initially, looking at the contractors who got those really big, important deals to deliver masks, gloves, test kits right away. To get a, an exact figure on who delivered and who didn't, is nearly impossible because we have 50 different states, all of the cities therein, hospitals buying and competing for the same supplies, and the federal government's contracting apparatus uh, often extends, you know, many years for the delivery of certain things. What was evident is in that first year, the federal government and cities and states were caught in this bind of having really no choice but to give anyone and everyone a deal because they were so unprepared and had to wade and waste time and resources to figure out who was legitimate, who wasn't, and in, in often cases, you know, sue a contractor to claw back money for items that weren't delivered. 
David, we began the show talking about China, which is obviously the, the other extreme, a top-down system, highly authoritarian. The American is a highly distributed system with a incompetent, dysfunctional, disorganized, probably corrupt state. Um, is there any any model in between? Don't 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 throw Denmark back at me. I've I've had enough of hearing about why the Danes do everything right. Is right. Korea a model? Um, Germany, the United Kingdom. What are the models that actually worked in terms of a, a balanced approach between private enterprise and the state in terms of a, a quite unexpected uh, pandemic? It's all very well talking about being prepared, but no one really expected this. It's always easy to say after that people expect. There's always someone who, 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 who cried wolf. But the reality was that this is an enormous shock to the system. It hasn't happened for 60 years or 100 years. Uh, actually, I mean, we absolutely did expect it. Our best scientists in several government agencies had warned that exactly this sort of pandemic would happen and we would be flat-footed in states and cities and the federal government would be competing for things like N95 masks. Uh, and in fact, the swine flu uh, epidemic of 2009-2010 was really sort of a warning that we ultimately didn't heed. Uh, but to answer your question, I mean, it's, it is a dynamic one. And, and I thought long and hard about this. And ultimately in the, in the book, I'm not making the case for one political economic system over another. I don't think there are strong counterfactuals when you consider how long the pandemic has dragged on and how cases have brought different states at certain times into into disarray for a long time you could hold germany up as a really shining example in large part because of their vast uh you know public health network and you know universal health care but then again when it came time to get the vaccines to your point we had them uh and, and we, we paid handsomely for them but it but i i I'd, I'd have to say most of us probably feel like it was worth it and they were stuck messing with uh, astrazeneca and the whole mess that we saw in the EU. And while China has the ability to lock down entire cities and, you know, perhaps mitigate some of the things we saw, you know, dealing with 50 different states in a federalist system where you have 50 different epidemics, that came at, at huge expense to human rights. So I don't make the argument that, you know, one political economic system would be better than another. I do, however, make the argument that you know, in this country, we, you know, we have a capitalist system, we have a government uh, outsourcing apparatus that we lean heavily on, and we need to be better prepared and at least do some modicum of vetting when we hire these folks, because it did, uh, it did create chaos and, you know, really got in our way uh, at, at really key points. One, one good example you know, we, we had already screwed up uh, as a nation in terms of testing. We were lagging far behind, in part because the CDC had issued a, a test that the World Health Organization was rolling out. So we couldn't figure out how to get testing and figure out how to get ahead of the virus. We were constantly responding. So one of the things that the Federal Emergency Management Agency did, FEMA, uh, they hired an LLC that had started up on a Monday. They gave them a contract by Thursday, I think it was, for something like $10 million to deliver test kits. And, you know, when I when I dug into it, uh, along with a colleague at ProPublica, 
we found that you know this the proprietor of this company had was had been sued by the federal trade commission for allegations of fraud had a history of of you know dubious business dealings and what he was actually delivering weren't test kits but were mini plastic soda bottles that are blown up to create two liter bottles in your local grocery store you might see these things in your third graders chemistry set as well but they're completely unusable they don't fit standard lab equipment they're brittle and he had temp workers in a warehouse outside of Houston using literal snow shovels to you know to move these things into bins and squirting saline in and long story short, these are delivered, FEMA pays for them, delivers them to all 50 states, and they're completely unusable. It's set back testing uh, in, in several states uh, where I talk to public health officials. So that's an example where thinking ahead and being mindful of where you throw money could have, you know, could have led us down a better path. I mean, certainly, uh, certainly... Uh that's the case. Um, I'm talking with J. David McSwain, the author of Pandemic Inc., uh, a book about a lot of the corruption involved in the first wave of the, uh, the, 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 uh, the COVID pandemic in the United States, bad government contracts which went to capitalists and or thieves or both thieves and capitalists inventing lying. Um, uh, David, uh, did any of these people ever go to jail, these thieves? Uh, some did. In, in the book, I have a chapter devoted to the Paycheck Protection Program, which is a huge $800 billion. Yeah, the PPP loans. And, and in that instance, federal prosecutors are going to be catching up to people for years. Uh, hundreds of people are, are being charged and, and convicted. And, uh, you know, that's one just a broad example. And, and a lot of us already know about that. In terms of the main characters I delve into in the book, the individual who, you know, invited me aboard the private plane after we wrote an initial story in ProPublica in May 2020, uh, he, he was eventually charged with three counts of fraud and, uh, you know, is, is currently in prison as a result of of his guilty plea and, and so there is addiction. some justice for these thieves who ripped us off while we all got sick uh, i'm talking with j david mcswain the author of pandemic inc a really interesting investigative book a piece of investigative journalism he works for ProPublica. that's his day job about the corruption involved in the first wave of the covid epidemic in the united states afterwards um we're gonna take a, a, a short break david and then afterwards i want to talk about Trump administration in particular, what you saw, some of the characters involved and what your book reveals about the dysfunctionality, corruption and perhaps criminality of the Trump, uh, of, of the Trump regime. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds with J. David McSwain, the author of Pandemic Inc. Don't go anywhere, anyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox, or many of the other traditional 
podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, If you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We're back with J. David McSwain, the author of Pandemic Inc., a really interesting new book about chasing the capitalists and thieves who got rich while we got sick during the first COVID epidemic. Um, David, I began the show um, talking about how history might be repeating itself, but of course it's repeating itself in a very different political environment. We no longer have uh, Donald J. Trump as president. We have Joe Biden. Do you think that the America of um, April 2022 is better prepared for another pandemic than the America of April 2020? In, in, in the context of what you reported on, if something happened that resulted in another terrible outbreak of, uh, of the pandemic and and, and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people dying and the need for new kinds of medical um, hardware. Are we ready or has anything changed at all in the last two years? Well, I think we'd certainly be more ready than we were in early 2020, if for no other reason than we've all learned how to deal with a pandemic in our individual lives. Uh, in terms of the politics and the infrastructure, there's a lot to be left to be wanting. I mean, I, I think uh, our the, the the mobilization around the vaccine is a truly extraordinary an extraordinary story, which I, I do touch on in the book. And I think that there's lessons learned from that that might better prepare us in terms of rolling out the vaccine. Uh, however, we're still learning lessons about testing. That's still been kind of a mess. We haven't outbreak here in DC uh, of, of a lesser strain and we have more vaccination. So it's it's a little less dangerous, but, you know, we're heading into a midterms where the Democrats are, you know, it's looking like they they may be trounced and, you know, the politics of of the right and how these things played out in red states and how that undermanned things going and going on in neighboring states. I think we're going to still contend with that. I, I don't think we've healed and really licked our wounds and had time to think about how we're going to handle this in terms of the politics, in terms of supplies, you know, uh, President Biden's administration has, uh, you know, submitted or offered a budget proposal to invest heavily in preparedness. A lot of that is resting in the, in the Health and Human Services um, Department, and you know th- that will make a difference. What it means exactly in terms of number of supplies and who gets the money and who we hire 
has really yet to be seen. And of course, that has to go through Congress. Uh, but I think just by virtue of the beating we've taken, we, we should be better prepared if this were to happen imminently. Now, 10 years down the road and priorities change and politics and money goes where certain people want it. Uh, you know, I, I talk a little bit about this in the book. I mean, 10 years before this pandemic, you know, there were warnings and the stockpile was being slowly trimmed because of uh, some of our nasty politics. I think we're at risk of seeing that very same thing happen again. And, you know, the solution to that is hypervigilance and, you know, better discourse and really taking a look at science and things that are really good for the communal good. It's, it should not be a political issue that, you know, we should wear masks if there is a contagion. Well, for better or worse, David, you, you know as well as I do that they, yeah. the, these are political issues, whether we like them or not. They're, they were made in part to be yeah. political issues by Donald J. Trump. Here we have right. him um, uh, in one of his traditional poses with his mouth open, shouting at people. What does your book tell us about the Trump regime, the regime that didn't already? No, we knew that it was corrupt and dysfunctional, but their particular um, their particular take on 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 in in pandemic ink, which makes more sense of of the incompetence uh, of of the Trump regime. Yeah, I, I'm not interested in partisan reporting or you know even piling onto the Trump administration. What I really tried to look at were you know what were the levers that were being pulled, what things were being it ignored. And, uh, you know, some of this had already come out because it was such a huge issue and such a huge failure. But just taking a look at how they decided who was going to be hired to do certain things, it, it, it was pretty obvious that things were being called out of the White House that should have been in the hands of scientists and, and bureaucrats. For instance, uh, President Trump's trade advisor, Peter Navarro, who's a character and remains in headlines uh, today, did something remarkable. He sort of hopped into the federal purchasing apparatus and began steering contracts to where he saw fit. And, you know, I talk about this a little bit. He he was something of a tragic figure. He, he was almost a hero here. He, he could have really, you know, spurred the, the Trump administration to uh, to get moving and his sort of adherence to things like hydroxychloroquine really got in the way and, you know, steering contracts to people he, he had connections to got in the way and not listening to the lead scientist over at BARDA, for instance, Rick Bright, who later became a whistleblower, got in the way. So I, I try to just sort of follow the saga of just a few people involved in that administration and how that ended up affecting us down the line. Michael Lewis, um, David, wrote an interesting book, The Fifth Risk, uh, mm -hmm. three years ago, talking about the way in which uh, Trump and his appointees, including Navarro, essentially looted the state or state um, state bureaucracies when they came into right. office. Do you think that they have some accountability there in terms of Lewis's observation in, in The Fifth Risk? Did, did the Trump administration loot the bureaucratic state undermined it essentially so that they were particularly ill-prepared for a national emergency like COVID. I think that certainly exacerbated the issue. I, I, I read the, the fifth risk actually not long before the pandemic and 
having read that even, I was shocked as I got a little bit closer to the people running the national stockpile and some of these organizations we used to not care about, uh, or, or uh, departments rather. And it, it was striking to see that the sort of lack of respect for professional governance and bureaucracy really just pervaded everything and prevented us from doing just really practical, normal things like telling Americans to wear masks uh, at, or, you know, cutting a deal with an American manufacturer, a factory here on our own soil who's offering to make masks. Th those sort of decisions were being superseded by people with political intentions and large personalities who, you know, end up leaving the administration and writing books. Is that one particular story? Uh, there are all sorts of stories um, in the media about uh, the biggest fraud of generation, the, uh, the, the fraudsters who they, and I'm quoting from a CBS news piece, they bought Lamborghinis, Ferraris and Bentleys and Teslas, of course, lots of Teslas. There was the guy who bought the Pokemon cards. Is there a particular anecdote from your book that summarizes how so many corrupt um, individuals looted the state during this crisis? Yeah, you're, you're referencing the, the PPP program, which, which really was just an astounding case study of just widespread fraud that was really incentivized by quick money being sent through banks who had an incentive to rush it out. And you know, very few, very little oversight. But to be fair to well, those banks, I mean, they were given that by the state because the state thought that the banks were the most efficient channel to distribute money. Right, but a, a lot of those banks in the in the first wave of that program actually ended up giving a lot of money to large companies who were using subsidiaries and franchises and and things like that. Well, you know, your individual, you know, contractor or hairstylist you know, or small business owner of any type really struggled to get through the paperwork to get those loans that sort of came later. So th this incentive to rush money out was baked into the system, but there was very due diligence being done. And, and I think most of that blame does fall with Congress, which crafted that program. Uh, but, but one example comes to mind. Um, I touch on this briefly in, in, in the book, in the chapter on, on the PPP program as an individual named Don Cisternino, who had a defunct marketing company. He was a former actor who had a couple credits and resurrected the company according to his indictment to claim that he had, you know, hundreds of employees and ended up, you know, faking according to federal investigators, you know, tax statements using bogus social security numbers and collected a ton of money, bought, you know, a Bentley, uh, a, a Lincoln Navigator and all this. And, you know, he gets caught pretty quickly, including, you know, he got a mansion out in Seminole County, Florida, I believe. And when it's clear that, you know, federal investigators are catching up to him, he actually goes on the lam. He, he flees to Europe and he's eventually caught in Croatia. And when he's brought before a judge there, according to reporting there, uh, he actually said, you know, I, I fled because of the change in administration. What I was doing was fine under the Trump administration, but the Biden administration is going to prosecute, me. Uh, which, of course, is not true. But it, it tells you something about the signal that would be criminals got from an administration, you know, that was 
headed up by, uh, you know, a, a notorious con man and, you know, the attitude that sort of trickles down as a result of that. Finally, David, things, as I said at the beginning, on the one hand, we seem to be going back to the past. On the other hand, things seem to be getting normal. U.S. airlines are seeking, for example, to end the COVID mask mandate. Is there one thing that we can learn from this crisis of COVID? Americans aren't very good at learning. They're very good at forgetting, in particular, important lessons. But if there's one thing that we can get out of your new book, Pandemic Inc., Chasing the Capitalists and Thieves Who Got Rich While We Got Sick, what can we learn? What can we learn? Well, we can learn that this this is a country that is falling back on its worst instincts. Uh, we saw that in terms of greed, as, as evidenced by these contractors who came into the mix. Uh, we saw that in terms of the arrogance by which the administration and even some states you know, hired certain people, this sort of worship of the entrepreneur. And, you know, we saw this in, you know, that's sort of the capitalistic manifestation of uh, this really strong sense of individual liberty, which on a day to day basis with our neighbors, we see in terms of choosing not to wear a mask, even though it might kill your own kin. Uh, I, I think we need to really evaluate some of the things that we think make us Americans and remember that we're all into this together. Now, I know that sounds kind of Pollyanna-ish, but uh, I think that there are very practical ways we can do that in terms of governance, but and there are also ways we can do that. You know, for instance, you know, wearing a mask if, if you're, you know, with, around people who have vulnerabilities. Well, there you have it. Continue to wear your mask. That's the advice of J. David McSwain, the author of Pandemic Inc., Chasing the Capitalists and Thieves Who Got Rich While We Got Sick. Um, as we teeter on another potential COVID crisis, uh, April 12th, 2022, David, what else should we be reading in addition to your new book? Oh, uh, well, I'll be honest with you. I've been so steeped in journalism. You should always be honest with me, David. <laughs> reading, uh, re reading arcane government records and everything. I, I came out of this and the first thing I picked up was uh, James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain. It's something that I realized, you know, it wasn't taught to me in school and a few things that sort of popped up in just daily life. And I, I thought I got to, I got to, I got to go back and read some of these things. And I'm just astounded by, by the writing and the story and, uh, frankly, it's disheartening. I felt like I should just quit writing. He, he, he invented it and then <laughs> he retired it. Um, it's that good. So I've been enjoying that. Uh, in terms of contemporary books coming out, you know, I actually haven't paid much attention to anything that would be relevant to what we just talked about. Well, congratulations, as I said before, David, on the book. It's quite an achievement. You went on the road, you followed the money and what you found is very disturbing. Pandemic Inc., Chasing the capitalists and thieves who got rich while we got sick. Are these the people, David, who are running the world in April 2022? Who's in charge these days? <laughs> well, probably more than we would like to admit. The uh, you know there is there's a lot of fraud out there, and it's not always necessarily business enterprise. Uh, we see it in our politics all the time. Um, you have lawmakers with law degrees from Harvard you know, making the claim that, a um, you know, a, a public defender can't defend somebody, you know, which is blatantly unconstitutional. Um, so unfortunately, moving forward, I'm, I am worried that it might be the liars who are in charge. 